If I haven't met you, sorry, my name is Luke, and um, I have the privilege of preaching. I want to share a message with you today. We as a church, we value God's Word. In fact, as, as God's people, as God's family, as God's children, we believe that our lives are, in a sense, we're submitted under God's Word, that God gives us His Bible, He gives us His Word, and it reveals who God is, it reveals what God's done, and then we as His people look at who God is, we look at who God's done, and we see it in His Word, and then we bring our lives into alignment with that. And so that's why, as a church, we, we preach through books of the Bible uh, for the most part of the year. That's what we do. And this, this year, we're busy working through the book of James, um, James' uh, book written in the New Testament, and we are a good few weeks in. I'm not too sure. We've broken James down into four mini-series. We're in the mini-series number three as we're looking at the subject of true wisdom. In the book of James, God reveals to us a series of, ch- a series of um, chunks of scripture where he's speaking about true wisdom and what true wisdom looks like. And so um, I feel like I just got loud in here. Am I, we're, we are right in here? Sorry, man. Um, True wisdom is where we're looking at. And today, in true wisdom, James transitions to speaking about the subject of conflict. Conflict. None of us, obviously, not relevant to any of our lives. Um, and, he, and, he, and he spends, we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at conflict. The lead singer of the band, U2, a guy named Bono, he once said this, the hardest thing to do is to stick together. Mates, family, marriage, business, band, it's like resisting gravity. The alternate is just too predictable. To rid the room of argument, you empty your life of the people you need the most. Conflict is it's part of being human. It's part of life. Yet, where do we learn to deal with conflict well? Where's like the school for dealing with conflict? It's, it's part of all of our lives, part of probably all of your relationships, where do you learn how to do it well, though? Some of us, maybe, some of us come from, maybe you're lucky enough to come from a family where you learn some really great skills when it comes to dealing with conflict. Others of us, not so much. I'm honest with you, my parents were divorced when I was five. It was, it was a toxic, messy situation. My mom was remarried, and um, it wasn't long before there were toxic patterns in that marriage as well, and, uh, and, and that uh, marriage ended in divorce by the time I was 12 or 13. And so as a young guy, I grew up, in the midst of conflict, not done well, and was shaped in so many ways by that. Conflict has shaped my life. I'm sure it's in some ways shaped your life as well. And then, and then, and then you come to faith. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christ follower. You're looking in. You're wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus. But many of us in this room, we've come to faith. You come to faith, and uh, you receive a new spirit. You, you receive a new nature. Extraordinary but you have this hangover from the past, this old way of life, these old habits, this residue. Um, what, what did Pete Scazzaro say once? He said, um, we've, got, uh, we've got Jesus in our hearts and grandpa in our bones. You know, there's this history that you carry, this residue of this old life. And these old patterns die hard. Do you know what I mean? Any of you know what I'm talking about a little bit maybe, Right? And James is writing to a church where that's what's happened. I mean, if you, you knew the church and you're looking in, you're wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus. I, I want, the first thing I want to say on the front end, Christians are not perfect people. Nor is the church a perfect place, nor is this church a perfect church. James is writing to a church because the conflict and ways of dealing with conflict in that church have got so out of hand that he has to spend a significant chunk of his letter addressing the funkiness of their conflict. 
We're not a perfect people. We're not a perfect church. Yet, God's Spirit is in each of us as Christ followers. We have a new nature, and we are learning together in His presence by His power to learn how to do this in different ways. And so that's why James writes this in. There is hope for all of us. And so we're going to be reading today from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. James chapter 4 was, was 1 to 6. Next week, we'll go 7 to 10, and then 11 to 12 of the next, as I said, these three Sundays, we're grappling with the subject of conflict. We're going to read today, chapter 4, 1 to 6. I'm going to share the big idea and unpack it for our lives as we go on a bit of a journey grappling with what conflict looks like, the problem of conflict. Today, we'll look at the source of conflict in our lives. And so, are you ready to jump in? Let's go. James chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Depending on your translation, might even say wars. Right? Imagine writing to our church saying, hey, what causes wars in your church? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, exclamation mark. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your sons and your daughters, as brothers and sisters. And we ask, Lord, as we come before you that as we look at your word, you would speak to us, Lord. Speak to us of who you are. Speak to us of our own lives. Speak to us of what you've done, of your heart for our lives. And lead us into a new way of living, we pray. For those of us here today, you're not a Christ follower. Maybe you, you try a prayer like this. You pray, God, if you're real, would you speak to me? Speak to me from your word. Amen. Okay, so we're grappling with real wisdom. We're grappling with true wisdom, wisdom for life. And James is opening the subject of conflict here. And the idea is that wisdom in our world is very different than wisdom, the wisdom of God. They're not the same thing. They don't always align. At times they do, but at many times they don't. And James is speaking to us of a wisdom contrary to the world in which we live, a wisdom that should define us as God's people. And he starts with a very important question that's relevant to all of our lives. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? What is the source of your conflict? Let's understand the problem that's going on here. This church is in crisis. There is conflict that is going on. It's serious enough for James to stop and devote a significant chunk of his letter to addressing these problems. In all likelihood, he's writing to a group of people who are constantly fighting and their, dis their fighting has become destructive in their lives. It's both hindering their, their own uh, lives, it's hindering their worship, it's hindering their witness to their community their conflict is shocking and it's destroying their lives and ruining their witness around them. The Greek word here for quarrels and fights can be verbal or physical even, right? It can even refer to armed conflict, which gives us a little picture of how we can apply this to our lives. Verbal conflicts 
that are experienced like armored conflict. Does anybody here know what I mean when I say that? <laughs> no elbowing or nudging allowed in this morning's meeting. Okay. He starts by asking the question, what is the source of our conflict? Where does conflict come from? Where is it alive? And the answer to that and today's big idea for the message is this. It comes from within. James says, it comes from within. Is it not this, James says, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Everything in me, in the midst of the conflict situation, I want to blame somebody else. I want to blame my circumstances. Interestingly, I can do very little to change that other person, and oftentimes I can do very little to change my circumstances, so it totally absolves me of having to do anything about it. James says, though, no, the problem is not the other person. The problem is not the circumstances of your life. There is a source within you. He doesn't let us off the hook so easy. James says conflict comes from within, not from without. The root of the conflict is not circumstantial. It's not external, but it's internal within their hearts. And he uses this word passions. Did you see it in the text there? Passions, appetites at work within your desires as a person. It's a deep longing for something, a thing that you long for the most in your life, a thing that you're willing to do just about anything to get that thing. Even sometimes treat another human being poorly if you believe that will give you the thing that you're longing for. When you desire something, perhaps even a good thing, but that desire morphs from a healthy desire to a sinful one that's self-centered, even a demand we make on other people. I think James is writing to people whose lives have become curved inward on themselves and their own needs and their own wants. And James says that this inner discontent they're experiencing from having these these kind of selfish, fleshy desires that are unmet is causing horizontal implications and vertical implications. Horizontal implications he mentions too. Number one, he says it's murderous. You see that word in there? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. Now, does it mean that they actually murder? It could go that way in the Greek. I don't think that is the case, though. I think what's going on here is that James wants them to know that their habits and their actions in the midst of conflict have got a trajectory that they are on, and at the very least, they are destroying and harming one another in the way in which they are conflicting together. The second thing James says is coveting. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You've got discontent in your life, and then you start to compare horizontally, and it breeds envy, and it breeds coveting amongst them. And James says there's a vertical dimension to this as well. It's not just ruining us horizontally, it ruins us vertically as well. And the answer here is unanswered prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Even when you do pray, you don't receive what you're praying for because what you're praying for is rooted in a life curved in on itself. It's selfish. You, you, your life is orientated inwards. And so even God in your prayer life becomes a means to the end that you seek. God is like a personal vending machine or a genie to satisfy your desires. And it sounds very sinister and we can easily go, well, that's terrible. How can those people do that, Right? Maybe it's a lot more relatable than we think. 
oh Lord, please will you change my spouse? Please will you make her more like you, Jesus? Yeah, impossible. Impossible in my situation. Thank you, Jade. Not because, not because necessarily I really love her and I'm, I am so jealous that she would become more like you, Christ. But really, if you changed her to be more like Jesus, my life would be so much better and I'd be so happy. God, can you please fix my kids? <laughs> please, Lord. Because, Jesus, I'm jealous that they would grow up to be young men and young women who, who, who praise you or... Because I just I'm sick and tired of all of this, and I can't take it anymore. I, I mean, I, I, it's closer to home than we think, eh? Even our prayers for our kids can morph, morph into prayers for our own personal happiness, for our friendships. These things happen, and James wants us to see that the source of conflict in our lives is a life curved in on itself. It's a life with selfish, fleshly passions and desires, and we see one another, even those closest to us, especially one clo- those closest to us, as means to an end to give us what we need to make us happy. And, and, and in the absence of that... Happiness, we become spiritually and relationally hangry with one another. Okay, we've got the theory. Make sense? Let's put this into some practice now. I had the, have the privilege of working through, I've got a really great booklet here by Tim Lane. He's an outstanding uh, pastor, Bible teacher, expositor of the scripture, but brilliant when it comes to counseling as well. And, um, and he, he gives this uh, situation in his uh, counseling booklet as well um, that I want to just read from. I don't often do this, but I'm going to read from his little booklet here. So Tim Lane's counseling book. Let's get practical. Rob could be very impatient with his wife and children especially at the end of a hard day. He would come home from work longing to get away from the pressures of daily life. He was going through a tough transition at work and was more agitated than normal. Sleepless nights were also taking a toll. One evening, Rob Rob was, was set on a calm evening without distractions. But as he came in the door, several of his children were arguing. The phone was ringing and his wife was noticeably irritated that he was late again. That's when it all unraveled. Rob began to yell at his children. I'm sick and tired of the mess and noise when I come home from work. All I ask for is a little bit of peace and quiet. Looking at his wife, Rob said, I am out of here. I'll come back when I cool off. In response, Rob's wife, Nina, grew cold and bitter as she reflected on the way she had been treated. And over time, she began to withdraw from Rob and to resent him and his job. Here are two people engaged in a conflict and they're doing it very differently and both in ungodly and wrong ways. Rob is aggressive in his anger. Nina is passive in her withdrawal. What's wrong here? Now, some might say that neither Rob or Nina are getting what they want and their legitimate needs are unmet. And so the solution here is that uh, Rob would help Nina with her needs and Nina would help Rob with his needs and the two of them would find a healthy medium and the problem would be solved. Rob has the right to a clean, quiet house. He's worked home. He's worked hard all day. 
in order to create that environment. And Nina has the right to respectful civil treatment in her own home as a human being, absolutely. What James is saying is this is deeper than just unmet needs. James is saying that something within, something has become so important. Let's look at Rob. Something has become so important within Rob that he's willing to do just about anything to see that he gets it. There's nothing wrong with his desire for a place of recovery from from a difficult day out there in work life. But when that desire for comfort and a quiet home becomes on steroids and self-centered, it becomes like a sinful demand that then he, he lashes out in anger to get. Tim Lane unpacks four typical desires that become all consuming in our lives. The first one is comfort. I want, I must have, and I deserve some rest at the end of my day. Comfort. Approval. I want, I must have, I deserve your approval. I'll do just about anything to get your approval. To hear those words where you speak over me, well done, you're worth it, good job. Success. I deserve success. I must have success. If I become successful in my career, in my sport, in my family, in my, you've put it, you complete the sentence. If I become successful, whatever that looks like for you, then I will know I've made it. My life has meaning. I'm worth it as a human being. And power is the fourth one. Power, I want, I must have power. Power maybe to control my environment to control my world because I'm afraid of losing, I'm afraid of what could go wrong. Four things Tim Lane says, power, success, approval, and comfort. And these needs become all-consuming in our lives when we're curved in on ourselves. I wonder which one of these describes you. Which one is your bias? I suppose we could stop there, but James goes deeper. Verse 4, James continues, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James continues now, and we've gone below kind of like meeting each other's needs to, hey, the real source is something alive within your heart, a sinful desire that's gotten out of control. Now, James goes further to another level of what's happening here. He uses the phrase, you adulterous people. Now, James is writing to people who were Jewish Christians. They had previously been of the Jewish faith and then saw Christ come in, and so they've got this history of understanding of the Old Testament that they bring with them, and they would have connected the dots in there. When Jesus, remember Jesus, when God gave at the top of Sinai the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. You cannot break any of the other commandments without first breaking the, the, the first commandment. You can't steal something without first deciding that having that thing is more important than your relationship with God. You cannot commit adultery without first deciding that that other person is more important 
than your relationship with God. You cannot, you cannot work through your Sabbath on a Sunday without first deciding that that task is more important than stopping and resting and trusting God to sustain your life. And Israel was invited by God into what we, the biblical word is a covenant relationship. The closest relationships we have in the world to that is a relationship between a husband and a wife uh, and, a, and a parent and a child. Whatever you do, I'm going to love you. I'm committed to you. Even when I'm getting nothing back, even child, when you are three in the morning and I'm sleepy and you're vomiting and there's mess and you've been, I'm going to get up. I'm going to see to you. I'm going to care for you. Even when I'm not getting anything back. Because why? Because I'm covenanted to you. I'm in this thing through thick and thin and sickness and in health for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. All the days of our lives, I'm there for you. It's a covenant. And God invites Israel into, that's why, sorry, that's why our marriage is reflective. The primary relationship, the primary covenant is God's covenant to us. Marriage is supposed to be a window reflecting that one. Even parenting reflects that original one. So God invites Israel into this kind of relationship to be first in your life every day of your life. And then when Israel went off and went worshiping other gods, they broke that covenant. It was an adulterous relationship. They had forsaken their first love and said, God, you are not my first love. This other thing trumps you. This other thing has become more important in my life. James is doing two things here. He's reminding them of who they really are, and he's revealing to them what they are really doing. The first thing we look at, what they're really doing. At the deepest level, James wants us to understand, when we are behaving like that to one another, it's more than just bad behavior. It's more than just toxic habits. It's more than just selfish lives. When our lives have become so curved in on ourselves that we're willing to treat other people like this, we have elevated a need. We've broken the first commandment before all the others. We've said, God, this need in my life, comfort, approval, success, power, is more important than my relationship with you. You've forsaken your primary relationship with God, the greatest love in my life. The conflict's source in our life is this desire that's got out of control and that's even dwarfed our relationship with God. And so James is saying it's primarily an issue of love and devotion to him, which is why the next verse, James reminds us of our jealous God. I'll unpack that briefly in a second later. But our faith in God is a relationship of exclusivity that where God is to be cherished more than any other desire of our lives. And when these other desires become more important, it's not just that you've chosen something else. It's that you've, you've forsaken your first love. It's, it's spiritual adultery is what James is saying. And so the question then becomes to us, what do I want right now more than Christ? And how am I acting in this conflict to get it? What do I want right now in this moment where I am lashing out, where I am withdrawing, where I'm whatever it is in the conflict you're doing? In that moment, what is it that I want right now more than Christ? And how am I acting to get it? James shows them what they're really doing, but he also reminds them by using this metaphor of adultery, who they really are. He yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Firstly, just worth saying, that is one of the most difficult to translate 
texts in all of the scripture. With the Greek, the Greek has got no punctuation in there as well. It is one of the most difficult phrases to translate, and different versions of the Bible have gone different ways throughout history. It's very difficult there. Whichever way you go, though, the meaning is quite clear, though. It's a metaphor reminding us of who we really are as a church, the bride of Christ, and that God is jealous over our first love and our devotion. It's not just that you've broken your first love, James is saying. He's saying, no, no, don't forget you're his bride. Don't forget you're his chosen one. Don't forget you have, as we sang today so much, God is a loving father who yearns to bring us back into relationship with him. He's even jealous over us as his first love. Just stop and wrap your brain around that a little bit. God is jealous for our relationship with him. It's a staggering thought to think that the God of the universe would become jealous over his uh, relationship with us. And the way, the way that's right is because jealousy is the appropriate response to adultery when you love somebody. It's not a permanent character trait of God for all of eternity. But as long as sin is there, it's an appropriate temporary response to a scorned or jilted lover in the context of betrayal. And, and that's what James is saying. He's not just saying there's betrayal, but he's saying, you are God's chosen bride. He has covenanted to you. He is a loving father who is for you. God's holy jealousy over our lives becomes a motivator towards holy living is what James is drawing us to. Saying, you've forgotten how much he loves you. You've forgotten how much he's for you. You see, as Christians, we're not just moralists. We're not just trying to be better people. Let's do conflict better. Let's just, let's just find each other's, your need, my need. We'll meet each other's needs and conflict will disappear. No, no, James is saying this is far deeper. This is a love issue. This is a worship issue. What are, you, are you worshiping comfort? Are you worshiping power? Are you worshiping success? Or are you worshiping Christ and you're receiving from Jesus everything you need to become a whole and complete person so that your life is no longer operating from deficit where I need you spouse, I need you children, I need you work, I need you money, approval, power, etc. to complete me. But I am complete in Christ and in my union with him. And so therefore that works its way out horizontally. I'm not in this relationship to get. I can, I'm here to give to others from an abundance that I have derived in Christ. It's a total different way of doing things that James is arguing for. And then James lands with the means that God gives us in the midst of our conflict. If you, if you got lost a little, little bit along the way there, I'm sorry, and I'm going to recap this all at the end. Last one here. James lands with the means that God avails to us in verse 6. But he gives grace, but he gives more grace, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God longs to lavish us with his grace in restoration of relationship and in order to empower us to live in his ways. Grace to forgive us when we blow it in our conflicts. Grace to forgive it deeper than that when we blow it in our relationship with God because we decided that something else 
was more important than him. Grace to forgive us horizontally, grace to forgive us vertically, but, it's, but, but there's more grace here. What, what's more grace all about? It's not just grace to deal with our sin, it's grace to empower us to live holy lives. One synonym for grace I heard a, a scholar say is, grace, a synonym for grace is God's helpfulness to us. Think about it like this. Jesus is, is a living, a dynamic source to us, like a spring is, to draw from him that which we need to live the lives he calls us to live. He empowers us with his grace to live lives of holiness as well. So let's put this all together according to James. The problem is that there is toxic conflict in our relationships. On the surface, it might seem it's all about meeting one another's needs. That if, if, if you met my needs more, then I would be a better friend, I would be a better spouse, I would be a better brother, etc., etc. James says it's deeper than that. James reminds us that our lives have become inwardly curved. Instead of being whole and satisfied in God and then living outward giving lives, we've elevated some or other need, either approval, comfort, success, or power, to a sinful level where we've become self-centered. And then deeper than that, in so doing, we've forsaken our primary love and devotion to God by making this other thing more important than our love for Him. And the solution that James gives to us then is but God, so rich in love and mercy, He is so loving for us, He is so jealous over us, that Christ lavishes us with His grace he forgives us of our sin and he restores us into relationship with him, which means having had everything we need given to us in Christ, we're no longer operating from deficit. We're, we're, opera, we're operating from overflow into our relationships. God gives us grace when we blow it and then he gives us grace to empower our lives to live in extraordinarily different ways. And that means as church, as we get this, we become incredibly humble. We're dependent on God. We need, we need his grace for forgiveness. We need his grace to empower our lives. We become humble. And when we become humble, we have a high view of others and we have a high view of God. And it's that humility that further even attracts the grace of God, James is saying to us. And in that humility, we relate to others not for what we can get, but for what we can give. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture to us. In landing that... Where do we access? How do we access the grace of God? One of the ways we access the grace of God is through the means of his table, of communion. Paul said on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And so what we do is we go to the table in a second we are literally taking into ourselves the work of Christ for our lives in the very presence of the Holy Spirit and as brothers and sisters we are inviting him freshly into ourselves in order to forgive us of sin and restore us for some of us as we've been talking as James has brought this out to us we realize man we've forsaken God 
We are blowing it. Maybe you blew it this week. Maybe you blew it this morning in the rush to church. I don't know. There is grace for you in dealing with that. Certainly for all of us, there is the, the desire to say, God, I need you. Will you empower me by your grace to live in your ways in my relationships? And so I want to frame that to us as we head to the table. Can I ask us to, uh, let's jump up, let's go and uh, grab, uh, pick up uh, some bread and some grape juice. And then we're going to share in a prayer moment as we take the elements of communion together. So there's, uh, I think there's some at the back as you came in and some in the front over here as well. Let's make our way to the table. Hey, if you're not a Christ follower, it's probably not for you. I know it'll be a little bit weird anyway. So please feel free to sit right where you are if that's you as well. But for the rest of us, we're going to feast on Christ this morning.